The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Today we are going to be in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Matthew, but I would encourage you now to turn to John chapter 8 if you have a Bible today. We've been saying this through each of the eight weeks of this sermon series. We're calling it Deeper. We're asking the question, how do people grow? And each week we've been going through a series of questions. And we've been sharing this from the pulpit for a long time. At Heritage, we, we, we describe ourselves as a body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. In this sermon series, these last seven weeks and today being the eighth and final week of this teaching series, this really serves as a foundation that forms some undergirding for what we strongly believe to be true about discipleship. This series is just just sort of introducing a a robust, we think, a holistic and biblical vision of discipleship upon which this foundation, upon this foundation, we will build for years as we seek to continue to become a church of disciples who make disciples. And so today we are going to look at the final marker of discipleship— which is godly character, or rather, which is willing submission to God, the final marker of discipleship. And so as we talk about discipleship, we've, we've gone through these prerequisites over the last several weeks. What is a disciple is the first question we've asked every week, and we've defined disciple heritage as someone who has faith in Jesus, someone who is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and someone who is leading others to follow Jesus. And so as we think about growing in discipleship, uh, being transformed, sanctified into the image of Jesus, that's that, that likeness of Christ part. And so growing in the likeness of Christ means God glorifying stewardship. Or I'm growing as a manager of God's resources for God's purposes. Growing in the likeness of Jesus means authentic relationships marked by love, where I'm growing relationally, genuinely connected to God and to others by love. Growing into the image of Christ or the likeness of Christ means a gospel purity and a mature doctrine, where I'm growing in my knowledge of Jesus, learning to better understand the gospel and to live out my life in reality of the kingdom that Jesus rules. Growing in the likeness of Christ means living a missional lifestyle. It's where I see the whole of my life my vocation, my leisure time, the whole of my life is to be lived missionally, to be on mission for God in everyday life. Growing in the likeness of Christ is pursuing emotional health, where I'm growing emotionally, learning to surrender my thoughts, my feelings, and my emotions over to God, where he brings healing and wholeness so that my inner life will have a positive effect on what it means for me to live for the glory of God every day. Growing in the likeness of Christ means authentic worship marked by relationship. It is the surrendering of my affections over to God, learning to offer relationally all that I am to God in response to the worthiness of who he is. Growing in the likeness of Christ means godly character, where I'm growing into the person whose words, deeds, and attitudes flow from a Christ-like heart, where my character is the very character of God's. And growing in the likeness of Christ, it means a willing submission to God, where I'm growing into a disciple who daily lays down my life my words, and my deeds, and trusting the whole of myself to God, holding nothing back. Men and women who are daily being shaped and formed by the Spirit of God to to look more and more like the image of Jesus, these are the kinds of disciples who not only have faith in Jesus, who not only are growing in the likeness of Jesus, but who are leading others to follow Jesus. This is a vision of discipleship that we think is vital for the health and the growth of the church. It's a lifelong process. And we call it discipleship. 
when we engage in this lifelong process of trying to be shaped, submitting and surrendering ourselves over to God that we might be shaped and formed in his image, we call this discipleship. And we say at Heritage, in discipleship, we walk with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we learn to live and love as Jesus did for the glory of God. It's a lifelong pursuit as he shapes us and molds us into the person he desires for us to be. And it is for this reason why we have put such effort and thought into this series, because we think this is the issue at the center of us being the church that God desires for us to be. And so today, in our final marker of discipleship, we are looking at willing submission to God. Let's begin by reading John 8, verses 28 through 30. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. 29. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Jesus says, For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him, to the Father. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Jesus here is speaking to, to crowds of people, but his audience, his audience, his specific audience whom he's addressing are the religious leaders who have rejected him or who are in the process of rejecting him. He says at the very beginning, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, he's speaking of, of the crucifixion. He's, he's looking forward to when he's hanging on a cross, and he's saying, when you have lifted me up, and it was the religious men and women of his day that lifted Jesus up and put him on the cross. He's saying to those who are there that it was you who are going to put me on the cross. But there's also religious seekers who are present because we read at the end of the text in verse 30 that uh, many believed in him as he taught. And so there's this crowd, and Jesus is speaking of the will of the Father, and he's speaking of his perfect submission to the Father's will. And the whole conversation points to Jesus' willing submission to the cross. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. This is about the, the obedience of Jesus, the, the perfect surrender of His will to the will of the fathers that manifested in the cross. And He says two things I want you to really notice in, this, in these three verses. He says in verse 28, I do nothing of my own authority. And then He says in verse 29, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Incredible statements. And so today, as we look at what it means for you and for me as disciples of Jesus to be molded and shaped into the image of Christ, as we look at what it means for us to have a willing submission to God, we look at these, these words of Jesus, this example of Jesus. It is us living in a way where we can authentically say, this is, as, as we seek to live in, in a willing submission to, to God, we, we would like Jesus one day, by the Spirit of God, be able to say, I do nothing of my own authority I always do the things that are pleasing to God. Let's unpack that together, but first let's pray. God, I'm grateful for the men and for the women that you've gathered here today. God, and I know that we come from all different walks of life today, each one of us, in different situations and life circumstances and different uh, family histories. And, and God, you know um, fully, more than any of us know even about ourselves, God, you know our story. God, you know all of the, the turns and the twists and the, the mountaintops and the valleys and the curve the curveballs and the speed bumps that have led to this moment in our life that has led us to be in this place at this time on this day to sit under the authority of your word preached. So God, my prayer is today by your spirit, you would move in our lives, each one of us, God, 
That whatever may be pulling our attention away or causing our hearts and minds to wander, God, that in the next few moments you would draw our attention and our eyes to you, Lord, that we might understand what it means for us to have a life that is willingly submitted to you. God, what it would look like in our life if you were to move in such a way that like Jesus, we could say back to you, I do nothing of my own authority. I always do the things that are pleasing to you. So God, meet us as we study these texts. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this week about a trapeze. Many have found the trapeze to be a rich metaphor for this concept of surrender or submission that we're talking about today. One of the reasons the metaphor resonates has to do with one of the meanings or the definitions we have of the word submit or the word surrender, which means to give over, to return that which belongs to another. This is one of the definitions for surrender. And there is probably no better metaphor to putting yourself in the hands of another than suspending yourself midair, waiting to be caught by another. This metaphor became central to Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen was a, a theologian, an author, and a scholar. Listen to what I read this week about Henry Nouwen. At the end of his life, Nouwen took a sabbatical and gave serious effort to learning the trapeze from a troop of flyers. It may seem like an odd thing for a brilliant scholar to do, but given that he was in many ways haunted by a struggle for control, it makes perfect sense. He wanted to bask in the reality of the metaphor by hanging in midair and learning to be caught. His key insight after doing this was that in order to be caught safely, the people being caught must be completely still. They must surrender control, place total trust in the catcher's ability. As Nouwen was hanging in the air, dependent on another, his faith was nourished through a tangible release of control. This is a picture of, of willing submission to God, a, a metaphor that begins to paint this picture of this marker of discipleship that we're leaning into this morning. When we talk about the idea of surrender or submission, it's, it's not an idea that, that we tend to favor. It, it's not an idea that we tend to lean toward. It's, we like our independence. We, we like our, our control and our strength and our self-sufficiency. And those of us from Southern Oregon, we, we, we really feel strongly about people not stepping on our toes or getting in our business. We like our freedom and our independence. We don't want to be dependent on another. We don't want to submit or surrender. It's not within our nature to do so. In fact, if you're like me, when I think about this concept, honestly, uh, it, it feels like weakness almost, like needless vulnerability. It feels like helplessness. And if, and if, I, if, I, if I do this, it, it feels dangerous at times. Like, I don't know... It, what if the one to whom I'm surrendering or submitting doesn't have my best interests in mind? What if, what if to the one to whom I, I'm being called to submit to or to surrender to, what if they're a tyrant? Or what if they're selfish? Or what if they're an abuser or a fool or a user? It feels like needless vulnerability, doesn't it? It feels, it feels dangerous unless, unless the one to whom I am surrendering or submitting has strong, capable, loving, and compassionate hands. Unless the one to whom I'm surrendering or submitting has my very best interest in mind and will advocate for what is very best in my life 100% of the time. Now anyone who's lived any length of time knows that the, the sense of control that we have that might keep us hanging on to the trapeze 
If you've lived any length of time and have had any losses in your life, you know that that's just an illusion. You know that the control that we think we have can be taken away in a minute. Anyone who's had cancer or lost a spouse or gone through bankruptcy or a divorce or lost a child, you can tell me in 10 seconds that we really don't have control. And that can be taken away in a minute. I was chatting with my aunt this week on the phone. My aunt, she lives in Montana. Uh, My mom's little sister. My cousin Jimmy, her son, passed away unexpectedly last July. So... 15 months ago. And she's really, really struggling to, to deal with the loss of her son. And as we chatted, th- this reality came up that anyone who's been around for, for, for years begins to realize, like, the, 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 the control that we think we have is an illusion. And, and if you live and you begin to bury the people you love and deal with losses on top of losses on top of losses, you realize that what am I holding on to anyways? There's really nothing here. It's hevel. It's, it's smoke. It means nothing. And so God, in his divine grace, sometimes he allows these losses to enter into our life. He, he strips control from us so that we might meet him in this place of, of vulnerability. And in his grace, he meets us there. And so today, we talk about willing surrender to God. So what is it? Here's my succinct definition. Question number three. Willing submission to God is choosing to lay down your life, your words, and your deeds, entrusting the whole of yourself to God. It's holding nothing back. That's my best definition. Willing submission to God is choosing to lay down your life, your words, and your deeds, entrusting the whole of yourself to God, holding nothing back. It is the full surrender of self. It is letting go of the trapeze and hanging midair. It is choosing to lay your life down and trusting the whole of yourself to God. It is choosing to cling to Christ and not to control. This is willing submission to God. So how did Jesus model it? Question number four. Well, we looked at our text earlier. We, we see him modeling it in how he speaks to these Pharisees in John chapter 8. And so the answer every week as we get to this question number four, how did Jesus model this? The answer every week is he modeled it perfectly. He was God in the flesh. And so my answer to how did Jesus model willing submission to God is Jesus was wholly submitted to the will of his Father. And it seems like every week we end up in the Garden of Gethsemane in this teaching series for some reason. Here's Jesus on his knees. His sweat is as blood. His best friends are falling asleep. He's there. He feels utterly alone. And he prays to the Father, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. And then famously at the end of the prayer, you know what he prays. Yet not my will be done, but yours. And And he picks himself up off the dirt as his sweat was as blood dripping into the soil. And he turns and he faces the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus lived out the implication of a surrendered will. Not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. He chose to lay down his life. He entrusted the whole of himself to the Father. He held nothing back, his words and his deeds, his very life on that cross, which allowed him to say in John chapter 8, I do nothing of my own authority. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. We see this in other places in John's gospel. Chapter 5, in two places, verse 19 and verse 30, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a son, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing, for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Verse 30 of chapter 5 in John's gospel, Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. So Jesus, obviously, was wholly submitted to the will of his Father. He modeled for us today what it looks like to choose to lay down your life and trusting your words, 
entrusting your deeds, entrusting your life to God, holding nothing back, which leads us to our fifth question. What did Jesus teach about willing submission to God? What did he teach about this? Now, we, we look at John 8, and this is what he modeled for us. But we believe that Jesus is both our Savior and our example. And so what does he, what does he teach about a willing submission to God in the Gospels? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's multiple places we could have turned for this. We could have turned to John 15 as Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and that we are to, be, we are to abide in the vine so that he produces fruit in and through us. This is a picture of a willing submission to the, to, to the lordship of Jesus. He talks about the unworthy servants in Luke 17, how this is just, this is the most basic fundamental aspect of what it means to be in the kingdom. But I chose to go to Matthew 7, the the Lord's Prayer. You're very familiar with this passage if you've been in the church. And even if you haven't been, you certainly have heard of the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. And in the Lord, in the Lord, the, the Matthew chapter 7, this is in the middle of a long, um, a long discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of of Matthew's gospel record this long teaching of Jesus. And in chapter 7, verses 7 through 13, if you have a Bible, I, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, I want us to look afresh at the Lord's Prayer. And there's, there's, a, there's a line in the Lord's Prayer, a petition of Jesus that he instructs us to pray that speaks to what it means for us to live and walk with a willing submission to God. Let's look at Matthew 7, verses 7 through 13. Thank you. I was just looking at Matthew 7. I'm like, Jonathan, just give Jonathan a hand. You know, it takes courage to speak up like that, man. Matthew 6 is clearly a typo. I would never make a mistake like that. Matthew 6, uh, verses 7 through 13. And when you pray, Jesus said, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Instead, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the Lord's Prayer. It's simple And it's profound. It's profoundly simple. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. His prayer has a beginning invocation, and then there are six petitions in the prayer that that, that give proper priority. The first three petitions focus on the supremacy of God, and the second three petitions focus on the personal needs of the body of Christ or the community. The first three petitions that focus on the the preeminence of God are, may your name be kept holy, Lord, May your kingdom come soon, Lord, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the three final petitions that have to do with the needs of the body. Give us today the food that we need. Forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So for the sake of our argument this morning, let's look at the first three petitions. Where Jesus teaches us to turn our face to heaven. Our Father in heaven, we turn our face to heaven, and our petition to him is to keep his name holy, that he would be exalted, made much of King of kings, Lord of lords, be holy, 
And may your kingdom come soon, Lord. And work in and through the body of Christ by, by your spirit that we may put our hands and feet to the work of expanding your kingdom on earth, waiting for the day that your son returns and we consummate and the kingdom is consummated. And then thirdly, he says, let his will be done on earth in our lives and, and in heaven. And so when I think of willing submission to God, the posture that will ultimately manifest from the human being who has a willing submission to God, the posture that that creates in our life leads to a prayer that says, thy will be done. Not my will be done. The posture of a person who has fully submitted to Christ, fully submitted to God, willingly surrendered, that person can say with confidence in their heart, thy will be done. May your will be done on earth and in heaven. A life that is willingly submitted to God says these things. A life that prays this prayer wants to see the will of God accomplished on earth, which means in my life, in my community, to the ends of the earth, and in heaven. So cosmically, so both personally, communally, and cosmically may the will of God unfold. When we pray thy will be done, we are acknowledging that it is his right to rule. It is Jesus who is on the throne, not me. We're not praying my will be done. We're praying thy will be done. We're asking God to unfold his will. And, and for us to pray that prayer with sincerity and honesty, it is a demonstration of trust. We are truly believing that he knows what's best when we pray that prayer from an authentic place. It's a statement of submission to God's ways and his plans. And we're asking that our will would be shaped and formed and conformed to the very will of God. We're acknowledging that he has more knowledge than I do. And here's when it's really hard to pray that prayer. At the exact time that we see Jesus praying the prayer in the midst of suffering and darkness when we cannot see where the next step must fall. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me and you protect me. When, we do, when, when it's so dark we don't even know where our next foot falls, it is sometimes more difficult to pray that will be done in those moments. And sometimes it's more easy because we're stripped of self-sufficiency in those moments. It's a commitment to actively working to further the execution of God's will, as I read this week. And so to say that will be done, metaphorically, is to let go of the trapeze bar. It's to trust yourself entirely to the strong arms of God. It's to hang helplessly in air and say, I'm here for you. In order to be caught safely, as we read earlier, the one being caught must be completely still. She must surrender control. He is placing total trust in the catcher's ability. Now listen, we cannot cling to control and to Christ at the same time. Listen to what I read this week, which was a very challenging read. John MacArthur, who I have mixed feelings about, just John MacArthur, whose book, The Gospel According to Jesus, lays out the case for lordship salvation. And he summarizes his teaching in this way. The gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. In other words, a sinner who refuses to repent is not saved, for he cannot cling to his sin and the Savior at the same time. And a sinner who rejects Christ's authority in his life does not have saving faith, for true faith encompasses a surrender to God. Thus, the gospel requires more than making an intellectual decision or mouthing a prayer. The gospel message is a call to discipleship. The sheep will follow the shepherd in submissive obedience. That was hard to read. Because I was raised in a culture that was very much about Jesus as Savior. Very much wanted to 
see people converted to go from death to life to confess Christ as Lord to get saved. I was raised in that culture, the, the street evangelism, the, the four spiritual laws. Just, just, just say the sinner's prayer. Say, get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved. Then we moved on to the next, and we never talked about Jesus as Lord. We talked a lot about Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. This idea of willing submission to God is dealing with the lordship of Jesus in our lives. It's, it's a challenging thought. And again, I read that quote saying, I'm wrestling with this right now in my own personal life, thinking about what do I believe about this idea that you, can, you, cannot, you cannot half let go of the trapeze bar. Either you are submitting yourselves under the lordship of Christ or you're not. I'm, I'm wrestling in my mind with that. I haven't worked that all out in my head right now, but I'm just sharing it with you because this is what we're dealing with in this topic. It's, it's, it's a little fuzzy in my head. I hate to be fuzzy in the pulpit, but I'm working through that right now. I, I was in Romans 12 last night and again this morning where Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The letting go of the trapeze bar and saying, the whole of me is being submitted to the whole of you. This is holy and pleasing to God, Paul says. It's your true and proper worship, Paul says. Don't conform to the pattern of this world that would cling to the trapeze bar. No, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. So this is what Jesus teaches. This is what the scriptures teach us about a willing submission to God. Listen, a willing submission to God is choosing to lay down your life, your words and your deeds, and trusting the whole of yourself to God. It's holding nothing back. It is choosing to cling to Christ and not to control. And if the desire of Jesus for his disciples is to walk in such a way, to have this sort of discipleship uh, embodied within us, this leads us to our sixth question. Where are you? Where, where am I? Where are we as a church in, in, concerning this area of willing submission to God? This is one of the areas in the survey that we ask you some questions. We ask you to respond to these questions. I want you to hear these questions anew this morning and ask them of yourself. Not the person next to you, but ask them of yourself. Do I welcome the opportunity for God to tell me that I'm not permitted to, to do something I desire to do? Do I welcome the opportunity for God to tell me there are things that I must do even though I do not desire to do them? Does my life demonstrate a deep desire to do his will in all areas? Is my life compartmentalized by areas that I allow God to speak to and areas that I do not allow his input? Is it a complete joy to obey God and do I never fight him on it? Now, every human who has ever lived struggles with this. Submission to God is something, as I was thinking this week, submission to God is something that will happen to everybody who's ever lived. The question is how? And in, in what ways will this look? Paul, in, in, in Philippians 2, here's what he said. He, he's quoting Isaiah. He also quotes Isaiah in Romans 14. But here's what Paul says about, about the reality that one day everybody will know the truth about, about Jesus. He says, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And, and I was thinking about that this week. The truth is that every knee will bow eventually. Every knee will submit to the Lordship of God. The question is, will the bending of the knee be willing or not? 
I was thinking about my own life and my tendency when I was younger, and even to the day today, uh, when I was younger and I was walking with the Lord, and I would see the, the, the people in the world sort of like purposefully saying just defamatory things, like, like celebrating sin, saying really awful things about God, um, um, defaming God, denouncing God, blaspheming God, doing perverse things out in full view and, and celebrating those things. I would get so frustrated so angry, and I would think in my heart, oh, I hope you burn in hell. I would look at the, the dirty sinners doing these dirty things, and I would just be filled with rage. And a part of me, like, I hated to see the, the gospel defamed. I hated to see God spoke uh, negatively of. I hated to see lies spread. And so there's a part of that that I suppose is, is just like the, the offense that can be blasphemy that I hated seeing. But I was realizing, in, the older I get, uh, I, I realize in saying such a thing that I, I'm not addressing the, the plank in my own eye. And I'm pointing out the speck in the other's eyes. And the older I get, I begin to realize, like, oh, you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're celebrating. Politician, you don't know what you're celebrating. You don't know what you're standing up for. You don't understand that there will be a day when he returns. And you'll be driven to your knees in his presence. And the vileness of what you have done and the way you've lived your life and the way you've invested your resources it will be exposed to you. And you'll have to sit in the utter reality of your sin and you'll spend all of eternity with that sin being played over and over and over and over in your mind as the wrath of God is poured out on you, the just wrath of God for all eternity. And I find myself looking at those people now and I think to myself, you need to confess and repent. See, if I look at those people and I just point at their outward sin and damn them to hell and I don't concern them myself with a much greater sin of unbelief, then I'm doing nothing to address the issue. But if I recognize that those ugly outer sins are a manifestation of unbelief in people who have not willingly submitted themselves under the Lordship of Christ, I realize the answer to their life isn't for me to address their morality. The answer to their soul is for them to come to know Jesus, to see the supremacy of him, that they would surrender their very lives to him, experience forgiveness and atonement and salvation, that they might know him forever. Amen? And it's not easy. I mean, living our lives submitted to God is not an easy thing. I'm just looking at some of the language that Jesus spoke in the Gospels about what this kind of life looks like. There are some hard teachings. Luke 14, Jesus said, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, all that he has cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10, verse 37, Jesus said, Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Boy, that press is hard. To those of us that are parents, doesn't it? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. In the book of Philippians, again, as the Apostle Paul was talking about his journey with Jesus, he kind of paints a picture of what this looks like lived out real time. He, he said in, in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8, whatever gain I had, and he's a religious dude, had a religious pedigree, had an awesome religious resume, the respect of many. He said, whatever gain I had in the world, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So if we go back to our metaphor of the trapeze, to hold on to control, and to not let go and trust in the strong, loving, compassionate arms of God. To hold on to control is to hold on to rubbish. 
And that word rubbish, if you do a little bit of work in the Greek, it actually just means dung. It's just, it, just, it just means feces. So to hold on to control, the things we think are so important to us, and to, say, to reject willing submission to him, to hold on to the things in my life, is to literally hold on to crap. We cannot cling to control and cling to Christ at the same time. I think of those people on that moment, and maybe there's some of you who are here today who have rejected Jesus up to this point in your life. I'm not a hellfire and damnation guy. That's not my style. But I tell you what, man, I think about that day when the people who I love that don't know Jesus will stand in his presence and they'll be holding this armful of crap that they rejected him for and they're going to have to realize, what have I done? It is a terrifying thought. So anyways, I didn't pound the pulpit, so come on, I'm off. <laughs> Enough hell. It's just, it's just, I mean, one of our markers of discipleship is missional lifestyle. Like how important that we tell people we love about Jesus. How important that we model the love of Christ to people. How important that we don't look at their morality on the outside, but we concern ourselves with the unbelief in their heart. How important that we look at, at, our, at the stranger in our midst and see them as neighbor and friend and invite them into our home that we can induce, introduce them to the family of God. It's, it just should fuel mission for us, but that's a tangent. How are we doing in this area? We've been doing this thing each week where we have a scale of one, two, three, four, five, and one being failing and, and five being perfectly flourishing. So this is the last time we're going to do this. Let's, let's create a, a spectrum here, a, a scale where you can kind of decide where you think you are when it comes to this area in your life and in my life of willing submission to God. And number one, failing would be what I'm calling self-centered life. Where, where in your life, self is securely on the throne. You do what you want, and Jesus is entirely on the outside of everything you do. If that's you, you're a one. If you're a two, then here, the, your life is compartmentalized. There's a strong separation between the sacred and the secular. You know, the, the doors to the different rooms of your house are closed. Jesus is in the foyer, no place else. If you're a three, your, your life is accessible. You're like, you're not there yet, but you're beginning to recognize, like, I think I need him to have ac access to the whole of who I am. And you're beginning to, to make yourself available. You're not there yet, but you're aware that surrender needs to happen, and you're learning to unclench the hands of control. If you're a four, you're, you're offered your life. Not perfectly, but you're saying, yeah, I believe, it. I believe that my life is only live to the glory of God when I relinquish control of all things. And you have let go of the trapeze, you're hanging in midair, you're saying, I'm trusting you, Jesus. Not perfectly, but I've opened all the doors and I'm saying, I want, I want you to have ownership of everything. And if you're a five, you have absolute surrender of your life. You, you joyously, willingly, and perfectly submit every jot and tittle, every corner of your life has been fully and perfectly seceded or surrendered over to the Lord. So where, where would you be if you had to be honest with yourself? on a scale of one, two, three, four, or five. Put yourself in your mind somewhere on the scale. Again, we've said every week, we're not pointing fingers. We're not going to get badges for where you are. None of that. We just want to identify where we are so that we can begin to pursue authentic and real growth. Willing submission to God is choosing to lay down your life and trusting the whole of who you are, your life, your words, your deeds, to God, holding nothing back. It's choosing to, to not cling to the trapeze bar, but instead cling to Jesus. And this brings us to our seventh question. How can you, how can we, how can we grow in this area as a church? What does it look like for you and for me to take that next step in our journey with Jesus as we seek to, to willingly submit our life over to him? 
We've talked to staff as we, we, we interacted with this. We were talking about, okay, what does this look like in our life as believers? We ended up talking a lot about how trust and, and intimate knowledge are connected. Like, I'm not going to trust someone I don't know. And so we recognize that in order for us to begin talking about, hey, trust your whole life over to God, we have to know who he is. We have to address that nagging question in our mind, is he really for me? Like, if I really trust him, can I, can I, can I believe and trust that he's, he's going to lead me down a path of life in righteousness? I have to know, I have to believe uh, 100% that he's, he's not a tyrant, that he's not, that he's not an abuser, that, he's not, that he really wants what's best for me. And that, and, and that only comes through knowledge, through relationship, through depth, through pursuing him and, and uh, in connecting ourselves to community, to sitting under the preached word, to meeting with God in the scriptures, to having biblical fellowship and accountability, to, to, to having a rich prayer life, to pursuing him. Not that those things, it's just, we're, in, in doing all of that, it's not earning God's love or earning knowledge of God. It's just putting ourselves in a position where we un, un, unclench control of our hands and we're saying, God, I want to know you. And I'm putting, I'm putting myself in a position to know you through, through all these different means so you could be elevated in my life. We cannot trust God if we do not know him. Back to the trapeze analogy, John Ortberg writes about this. He says, the word trapeze, the little bar between the ropes that a trapeze artist has to let go of, it comes from the ancient Greek word trapeza, which means table. The only time this word is used in the New Testament is when the writer claims that Jesus gathers his friends around a table, trapeza, what we now call the communion table. It's at the communion table that Jesus teaches his disciples that he will have to let go of his life for them. He teaches them that the only way to hang on to one's life is to let go. But Jesus doesn't just tell them about the concept of, of submission or surrender. He models it perfectly. He rises from the communion table and he steps toward the cross. And then he climbs up on the cross in sight of all and Jesus in, in sight of everybody lets go. He hangs above the earth for three hours. His arms are stretched out wide. He doesn't move a muscle. His final breath, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The ultimate picture of submission. When Jesus did that, when he went to the cross as the perfect substitute for sinful men and women, he was saving us, but he was also teaching us about trust. He's our savior and he's our example. And so as we gather here today, Heritage Christian Fellowship, here's the leap. God is coming to you, and he's coming to me this morning, and he's saying, let go. I'm worthy of your trust. Let go. Cling no more to control, and instead cling to me. We've illustrated this through the use of a trapeze. Jeremy Neff shared with me another quick illustration I want to share with you that maybe helps you a little bit. Imagine your house is a blueprint. Your imagine your life is the blueprint of a house. Imagine that in this house are eight rooms. These eight rooms represent the eight different markers of discipleship or, or what those markers of discipleship deal with. Imagine you have a room for your resources, a room for your relationships, a room for your theology, a, a, a room for your, your, your vocation, for your emotions, a room for affections and your character, and, and a room for, for, for your control. And, and you want to invite him in. And so, like I said earlier, you invite Jesus into the foyer. There's a strong separation in your life between the sacred and the secular. And so many of us who, who, who are trying to figure out what it means to walk with Jesus obediently, many of us at different parts in our life have found ourselves in that spot where like we recognize through the gospel that, that Jesus is our Savior, but it's just very hard for us to give him 
full authority. We treat him more like a guest in our house and not the owner of the house. But then let's think about this a different way. In letting go of control and in clinging to Christ, we give full access and control to every area of our life. So then it looks like this. We open up the doors to every room. It's no longer my theology, my relationships, my vocation, my control, my emotions, my affections, my character. It's his. It belongs to him. Jesus owns it. I have willingly submitted it all to him. They're his resources. And the relationships he's given me for his glory. In its theology and doctrine, it allows me to know him better and serve him more. My vocation, my work, the things I do with my, with my free time is given back to him for his glory, for the sake of mission. My emotions are his, my affections are his. My character is being shaped and formed. It's all him, and I've released control to him. He owns it all. He's no longer a guest in my home. He's the owner of the whole thing. We've got to get away from the separation of the secular and the sacred. And our whole life is to be laid before him. It is his house. It is his life. We have to let go of control and we have to cling to Christ. So that when we look at our life and the whole of who we are, we, we give it back to him. When we were, when we were getting ready to, to kind of write, we were trying to come up with the title for the sermon series. And we, as a staff, about three months ago, we were chatting and during staff meeting, we're like, we came up with the word deeper and we're like water and roots and all this sort of stuff, trying to figure out how to, you know, how to put some sort of branding on the series, which I, which I hate that phrase, but whatever. And, uh, and we're like, and then the phrase, um, like we should have like a line that defines what we're going to be talking about for eight weeks. And so this phrase, um, how do people grow came up. And someone said, and it was a valuable question, someone in the group said, don't you mean how do people grow spiritually? And I'm like, no. Because that is separating the secular, the secular and the sacred. My spiritual growth is not divorced from my resources and my relationships and my theology and my emotions and my character and my control. It's we, how, does, how do people grow? Either we are his or we're not. Either we let go or we don't. So it's how do people grow? This is a holistic vision of what it means for us to be disciples of Jesus who have faith in him, who are being shaped and formed into his image and who are learning to lead others to follow him. And I'm telling you, as I look at this and as I look at our church, I see this happening in, in, in different pockets in some beautiful ways that have been so humbling for me to witness as a pastor. I'm sure there's a thousand other examples that I could share, but I think of, I think of my friends, Jake and Courtney, who, who lost their daughter, Cecilia, a year or two ago, and I watched them from afar just walk through that loss with open hands, trusting and believing that God was with them, as hard as that was, willingly submitting their lives over to God in the most painful places. When I see Mike Enright gather with men at the hub for the Conquer series, men who don't want to be owned by sexual addictions or sexual sin, and they go there and they say, I want Christ to have lordship over this part of my life. I see men willingly submitting their lives over to God because they want their lives to honor him. I think of three guys I work with. I think of Fred Haas, Aaron Beamish, and Patricio. These are three guys who had viable incomes, viable jobs, and make more money than they're making here. I'm not saying everybody has to do this, but for these three men, they chose to walk away from a career making more money, doing other things to give their lives to the service of the Lord. It's humbling. I think of the people from our church who got up and joined a launch team and went with Sam Peck to Grants Pass, Oregon to start a new work, to start a new church, to, to say yes to being on a serve team where you're going to be, I mean, changing diapers, setting up chairs, playing in the worship team, you're on the green. When you plant a church, it's all hands on deck. And they gave of themselves, saying, my life's not mine. I'm giving it back to God for his glory. I think of Marty Carlson. We just had a chat this morning. Marty is one of the senior saints at Heritage. 
her and Rich, I love them. And I watched Marty open up her home and open up her life to, to teach women to read the scriptures and to walk faithfully with Jesus. She doesn't have to do that. Like I said to her this morning, it's like, you could retire. You, you, could, go, you could go sit on the end of your dock and, and fish and watch the sunset. But you open up hours of your life and hours of your space so other people can come in and learn from you. Like, what a beautiful picture of a willing submission to God. We're doing this, church. We can do this. We're all invited to willingly submit to God, to choose to lay down our life, to entrust the whole of who we are to him, holding nothing back, clinging to Christ, and not to control. And lastly, the last question we've asked throughout this series, and and probably haven't given this much space as it deserves each week, is how how can we help each other grow? See, the vision of being a, a church of disciples who make disciples contingent, like central to that vision is that, that, that there is an interconnectedness that's happening within the body at all times. It, it, you, if you haven't figured it out by now, we, we, are, we are trying to deconstruct the, 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 the pyramid of hierarchy that tends to be built in churches, where you have a, a, a gifted teacher who sits at the top. I'm not saying I'm a gifted teacher, by the way. But you have a gifted teacher who sits at the top, who casts vision, who's sort of the visional, focal leader of everything. Everyone sort of just lines up under this Moses and we, we're going to go where that guy takes us. That's not biblical. There's one high priest. His name is Jesus. We're, we're to be a body of believers where we are stewarding our gifts and we're leaning into one another and we're sharpening one another. We're praying for one another and we're doing life together side by side, sharpening one another. So the vision of a church of disciples that make disciples means that actually I've got to get out of the way. And I've got to step off the stage. we just got to connect as a body. I can provide leadership and direction, yes, but it's not about having a gifted teacher or a gifted leader. It's about the body of Christ connecting and growing together. And so this vision for us being a church of disciples who make disciples is contingent on us engaging in one another's lives. Now, we provide mechanisms for that, but we can't program that. You can't program authentic community. You just can't. We have men's groups and women's groups and huddle groups and affinity groups, and we have opportunities after services to connect. We're doing everything we can to try to create space for men and women to connect, but we have to step outside of ourselves. And so how can we help each other grow as we can just commit to, to A, being vulnerable about our weaknesses and saying, I stink in this area. I don't want to stink in this area, but I need, I need a mentor. I need a Marty Carlson in my life to help me figure out what it looks like for me to submit myself to the Lord. It requires tremendous humility to do that. But I'm inviting us to that. I'll continue to invite us to that. But know what else it takes? Not only does it take us to be vulnerable about our weaknesses, it takes us to be honest about our strengths. Not prideful, but honest. There, every one of you in this room, God has uniquely fashioned, and you have something of significance to offer the larger body. Every one of you. Whether you're 16 or you're 86. Every one of us has something of significance to offer the body of Christ. And so you need to be honest about that. And you need to recognize that is something God has given you. That is a resource he has given you that you can share with others, that you can step into one another's lives. And, and, and so what, we, what we've done is we've tried to just create opportunities for real community to happen where we can begin to sharpen one another, whether it's through small groups or gathering after church or, or organic connections or, or just emboldening you to tap someone on the shoulder after church and say, let's go grab lunch together after church in whatever way we can help to facilitate that. And so one of the things you've heard us talk about through this whole series, this is the most pragmatic part that I'm going to share with you today, as we've talked about the discipleship survey. The story behind this survey, the story behind these eight markers of discipleship is they flowed out of Pastor Jeremy's sabbatical that he went on a summer and a half ago. 
a year and a half ago. And that's how this whole vision has sort of emerged as we've identified these markers. And then Pastor Aaron and Pastor Jeremy created this online survey that kind of helps us individually and corporately think about how we're doing, how, where we need to grow, where are we weak. And so we've got this, this survey. We've encouraged people to take at Heritage so we, that you can have both that data personally so you can know where you're strong and where you're not but also so we can have that data corporately. So we as a church and leadership, as we think about what needs to be taught and where we need to lean into, we can kind of know where we are as a church in the area of discipleship. Here's where we're strong. Here's where we're not so strong. We can break it down to demographics. So here's the most practical thing I'm going to ask you to do, and it's a strong ask. On the back of your bulletin, the third down or the second from the bottom, there's a little QR code. It says, take our discipleship survey. You can go to our app. There's a button on the front that says, take our survey. You can go to heritagefellowship.net, and there's a button on the homepage that says, take our survey. Church, I'm asking you, please, 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 take eight minutes, ten minutes, at some time in the next few days, please, and scan this QR code, or go to our homepage, or go to the app, and take a few minutes to take the survey. If you're not a tech person, we actually have physical paper copies of the survey that are available at the Connect Center. We are asking the men and women of our church to take a few minutes to take this discipleship survey that covers these eight markers of discipleship that we've taught for the last eight weeks, so that we can lean into you personally, and we can learn to grow and lean into the right areas corporately. One of, the, one of the real right now one-for-one one benefits you get from taking that survey is it's going to identify the areas of weakness for you, and we're going to kick back to you a whole host of resources. Some big, some not so big. Some are just blogs and videos, some are books, but areas of resources for you to begin to put feet towards growing in these different areas in your life. And so, how do people grow? That's the question we asked in this series. How do people grow? I think... When we think about willing submission to God, that's where we start. How do you grow? How do we grow as people? I think it begins most simply when we cling to Christ. When we choose to lay down our lives and our words and our deeds and trusting the whole of ourselves to God, holding nothing back. When we choose to cling to Christ and not to control. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that you are at work in our church. God, I'm grateful that you are at work in each one of our lives individually, you're at work in our church body corporately. God, I'm, I'm grateful that you are bringing about godliness in our lives. And, and God, our desire is to continue to grow. You know, God, I, I confess that, that my vision of what it meant to be a Christian for so many years was more just simply about conversion and being saved. And I didn't think deeply for years about what it meant to make you Lord of my life and that you were king. And that, that the whole of who I am needs to be submitted and surrendered over to your lordship. And, and uh, God, you're so gracious with us. God, you're so gracious with us each and every day that you, you, you work in us and through us by your spirit. God, you, you bring conviction where we're out of line. And you, and you bring joy when we, we walk in obedience. And, and God, you are walking with us as we seek to confess and repent and, and journey with you. God, just have your way with us as a church. God, open up divine appointments for the men and women of this body to connect with one another and sharpen one another. God, would you raise up the men and women who are gifted and godly and have, have, have wisdom to share? And would you raise up people in our church who are willing to be honest about their areas of deficiency so they can grow in community with one another? Ultimately, God, we just want, we want you to be glorified in our midst. As we, as we think about all these different things, these markers of discipleship, Jesus, we look to you and you are the perfect embodiment of it all. You lived and modeled for us a perfectly submitted life. And then you made a way through the cross 
for our sins to be nailed there. He made a way through your death and resurrection for our, our sin and death to be forever put down. That you fill us with your spirit, you sanctify and mold us into your image. And so God, we are just surrendering ourselves to you today. Have your way with us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.